Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Senator George Young, the Oklahoma City Democrat, has written multiple bills that would establish an Oklahoma Race and Equity Commission, but all of them, including Senate Bill 1204 from this session, have died in the legislature without so much as a committee hearing. Reporters Lionel Ramos and Rebecca Nahara have been reporting on why our state needs such a commission and what it would do for Oklahomans across the state. Today we have Lionel Ramos here to talk about that. Lionel, what is a race and equality commission and what would it do? Yeah, a, a race and equality commission's job would be pretty straightforward. It would allow Oklahomans to raise issues complaints, or proposals to the state relating to racial bias and discrimination. Uh, it would act as an advisory board for the legislature as well, um, while monitoring proposed laws for potentially discriminatory language. Um, and finally, it would act as a resource and clearinghouse for research, uh, for research on issues like uh, disproportionately high court fines and fees in black communities or violence against indigenous women, for example. Okay, and what, what can you tell us specifically about Senate Bill 1204? I know the commission proposed by the bill would have 30 members, uh, the governor, the Senate pro temp, and the Speaker of the House would each appoint seven, and the Legislative Black Caucus would appoint nine. Uh, each commissioner can serve a maximum of three years, and um, only two of those can be consecutive, so they can take you know two years, one year break, and then serve another if they're appointed. Um, the members would meet six times annually to hear from Oklahomans, uh, and those Oklahomans would help direct the focus of the commission's work. Um, and at the top of each year, except for the first, um, commissioners would elect their chair and vice chair. And so what happened to that bill in the legislature? Well, after it was read for the first time on the Senate floor, it was referred to the Senate General Government Committee. Um, it didn't get a hearing there, and instead it was pushed to the Appropriations Committee. Um, from there, the same thing happened, and the bill died in the Judiciary Committee uh, at the discretion of Senator and Judiciary Chairman Brent Howard, a Republican from Altus. Uh, the chairs of each committee are the ones who decide if a bill gets heard. Uh, unfortunately, efforts to reach the chairs of the three committees that had the chance to discuss Senate Bill 1204 were unsuccessful. So who would benefit from the creation of a, a race and equality commission? Sure. Uh, primarily racial minority groups, uh, black, Hispanic, Asian, indigenous, Muslim communities, um, sometimes in small pockets, but they exist all over Oklahoma. Uh, they would be the obvious groups of people to at least perceive a benefit from such a commission. Um, if a person feels racially profiled by any state entity, they would have a place to make that grievance known and have it investigated. But there are also groups that are not defined by race and ethnicity that could benefit, like rape victims who need abortions, or members of the LGBTQ plus community who would like to change their de gender designations to X on their birth certificate. They would have a platform to um, express their needs. Okay, well, what, what avenues for filing complaints based on racism or discrimination, uh, the kind of things you were just describing, uh, what are the options Oklahomans have now? Uh, there aren't very many. Right now, the Oklahoma Attorney General Office runs the Office of Civil Rights Enforcement, which was created after the Oklahoma, Oklahoma Human Rights Commission was dissolved in 2013. 
they basically merged the Human Rights Commission into the Attorney General's office and some of the duties. The office now only considers complaints made about law enforcement agencies. And when an investigation is prompted, the local agency itself conducts an internal investigation. Um, and data shows that they find nothing wrong almost every time. Um, if there is a complaint made about an agency that isn't law enforcement, it's just kind of flat out ignored. Are there commissions uh, similar to this proposal that uh, exist in other states that, you know, something maybe Oklahoma could use as a model? Yes. Uh, Kansas Governor Laura Kelly uh, has had a, a governor's commission on racial equity and justice for two years now. And that commission has uh, recommended legislation to the Kansas legislature uh, to basically forced the Attorney General's Office of Kansas to research missing and murdered indigenous women um, in the state and basically um, hopefully find them um, for one and identify them. All right, Lionel, thanks so much. You can read all of Lionel's work about the proposed Race and Equality Commission in Oklahoma and his other investigative stories at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment, I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest Justice Watch newsletter, Keaton analyzed a proposal to use general obligation bonds to pay for the construction of a new Oklahoma County jail. Keaton, where are Oklahoma County officials uh, in the process of building a new jail? Uh, we're, they're still pretty early on in the process. There's been studies looking at what a new jail would look like. Uh, potentially how much it would cost, those sorts of things. But as far as breaking ground or even picking a site, they're not quite there. There was a pretty significant development last week where the three-member Oklahoma County Board of Commissioners approved a bond vote uh, to to send several million dollars uh, to fund construction of a new jail. And when is the election uh, for that set? That's set for June 28th, which... Is pretty notable because obviously the jail has been a big issue in Oklahoma County, but June 28th is also the primary election date for several statewide and local races. So uh, I'd expect turnout to be pretty high. And if that bond were to be passed by voters, would that uh, affect property taxes? So it would remain flat, according to officials. If it does pass, you would be paying essentially what you're paying right now. If it fails, the rates would decline uh, a little bit, is my understanding. So uh, this is a $260 million fund we're talking about. Would that uh, pay for all of the jail construction? Would that cover it? It would cover about 80 to 90%. Uh, estimates have put an 1,800-bed jail at about, as you mentioned, $300 million. Um, so a little bit short, but should should cover most of it. Well, what w- there was an idea floating around that the county could use uh, federal COVID-19 relief funds to build a new jail. What happened to that idea? So the federal government came back. You know, this was thrown around in, in several states and, and local governments thinking that, you know, we could use these COVID-19 relief funds to build a new jail, build new prisons. 
the federal government said that's not an appropriate use of the money. Of course, it's supposed to help people who have been economically impacted by the pandemic, uh, those, those sorts of things. So that idea, you know, they kind of had to adjust, but uh, officials have said that they could potentially use some COVID-19 relief money to free up other county funds to put towards the jail construction or potentially uh, help fund the the proposed mental health unit that's uh, they're looking at putting inside a new a new jail. So those funds to, still could play a factor, but they're not going to to pay for most of the construction of the new jail. Okay, now if this $260 million bond proposal fails, uh, does that effectively kill the plan to build a new jail? It, it wouldn't kill the plan. It would, it would probably be kind of back to the drawing board and, and setting it back. Um, I know that the county commissioners that have been pushing it have, have you know, said publicly, put out opinion editorials that, you know, this is essential to getting a new jail built. Um, so as far as the, the plan for building a new county jail, this vote is very, very significant. Now, you've uh, reported in the past on uh, the preponderance of deaths in the Oklahoma County Jail. Uh, how have those been trending uh, inside the county's facility? So thus far in 2022, we're about 100 days into the new year, not even four months in, and we're, there have been six deaths inside the jail. Uh, so that's on pace to be you know more than 20 and you compare it to last year, there were 15. In 2020, there were eight. So certainly um, trending in not a great direction. Um, you know, Oklahoma County has had one of the highest jail death rates in the nation for several years, and that's that's continuing. What contributes to that? Why is it so high? So there are, there are several factors. One that's been discussed at length is the fact that detainees, it's not a direct monitoring system. So you have, you know, detention officers monitoring the facility from, you know, monitors and they're not really, you know, in the same space. You compare that to like a Tulsa County where um, it's more of an open space. The the detention officers are interacting with the detainees. It's kind of that, that shared space where um, you can maybe see things more easily, uh, build relationships more easily, that sort of thing. Um, also, the design flaws of the facility also been discussed at length. It's 13 stories tall. The elevators break down. It's just run down and not a good system. The The new proposed jail would uh, be a couple stories tall at most. So that would that would definitely be a change. And, and also just low staffing that prisons and jails across the nation uh, have faced. Um, you know, they, there have been efforts to try to increase the pay and, and recruit more people to work at the jail, but they're they're still struggling to to hire enough folks. Got it. And and just to be clear, Keaton, what you're saying is that at the Oklahoma County Jail, um, which you know we've had some some long discussed uh, design flaws, but that uh, the way uh, prisoners are supervised, the guards are in kind of little pods, and they. They watch the prisoners' uh, activity on computer monitors or or screens, essentially. Whereas in most places, guards are are walking up and down the cell blocks and 
seeing them in person and talking to them. That's the difference you're describing. Yeah, that's that's definitely right. There's it's there's kind of you know some some barriers and of and those sorts of things. So um, it can make it more difficult to to see things that are happening. See if someone's you know in distress or um, even if someone's you know has contraband that sort of thing. So. Got it. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of Keaton's reporting on Oklahoma's criminal justice system at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, uh, I am talking to Trevor Brown, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. Oklahoma's 2022 election season officially kicks off this week with the start of the candidate filing period. Uh, Trevor, what can we expect to see out at the Capitol this week? Yeah, so pretty much the campaign season is getting underway. This is a three-day filing period that starts Wednesday and ends Friday. And some candidates may have, you know, announced plans to runs. This is a time where they have to, you know, formally file, put down the money, and, you know, this is the final move. And so we're looking at federal, state, and judicial elections. They're all going to be coming to the Capitol, candidates or the representatives, to file, and then, you know, it's campaign season. It's going to be a busy election year. What are some of the big races to watch? Yeah, so one of the top uh, races would be the the governor's race. Governor Kevin Stitt is uh, seeking his re-election term. Um, he'll be facing Democrat Joy Hoffmeister. That's, you know, if they both make it out of the primaries, which is expected. Um, you know, the other big thing is we have two U.S. Senate races. That's unusual. Um, that's because Senator Jim Inhofe has announced his retirement. So we have his seat and Senator Lankford's seat that will be decided. And then we also have the entire congressional delegation and most of the legislature. Well, speaking of the legislature, you know, Republicans currently hold super majorities in both the House and Senate. Is that expected to change at all? No, even the most optimistic Democrat would tell you that they don't see predicting either the flipping the House or Senate anytime soon. Their goal right now is to stop the bleeding. Over the past decade, Democrats have lost seats in the um, legislature every year or have failed to pick up seats. Um, the Republicans have the largest majority in the House in state history, and they have been picking up seats, especially in rural Oklahoma, that Democrats have held for a long time. Well, now some of the candidates, though, who filed this week can seal a victory without even needing a single vote, right? How's that work? Yeah, that's right. Um, So in a lot of these races, just one candidate will file, you know, for, say, like a House District 45 or wherever. If one candidate files, they're the automatic winner because they don't have an opponent, obviously. Um, You know, this was a big issue last year. About 50 legislative seats were decided without having to need a single vote, and that's almost a third of the entire legislature. Well, how does Oklahoma compare to other states when it comes to these uncompetitive races, and and why does that even matter? Yeah, so at least in 2020, we had one of the most number of uncontested races in the country. Um, It matters because people in these districts, they don't even get to vote for a candidate. It's just... That's the one person. And maybe it's someone that they really like. Maybe it's not. Um, but experts have told me, you know, it hurts with voter engagement, political engagement. And, you know, it helps to hold candidates accountable if they have an opponent. And, you know, they can't. It's not a instant coronation. 
Well, and COVID made matters even worse in the last election cycle, didn't it? Yeah, we had one of the lowest turnouts um, that Oklahoma has seen in years. Um, In the legislature, there was about 256 candidates that ran that year. In 2018, there was almost double that amount. Now we saw a lot of renewed interest in the political um, kind of sphere that year was the teacher runoff, which was going on at the same time as the filing period. So we had a lot of people that weren't really involved in politics coming out before. Obviously, we saw kind of a backslide in 2020 then. Well, what have party leaders done to recruit candidates? And and what are some things that have prevented either party from fielding more candidates and giving voters more choices? Yeah, so I talked to some party leaders and, you know, they said over, you know, the entire previous year they've done outreach, um, you know, they've looked to recruit people. Um, you know, this has been a particularly problem for the Democrats. Um, there's a number of seats in the state where just the demographics, the the voter registration, Republicans will have an 80 to 20 percent edge and it's hard to, to get a candidate to run there. But, you know, I've been told that it's about building experience, even if they don't win. So both parties are, their goal is always to get as many candidates to go, but you got to get a candidate to actually want to run in a, in a hard to win seat. Well, speaking of that, this, this is going to be the first election under the uh, newly redistricted congressional and legislative boundaries, right? So how are those new district lines likely to affect uh, who might run? Yeah, there were some hopes that uh, after this redistricting, both the legislative and congressional districts would get more competitive to encourage more candidates to run on both sides. What we saw, and I crunched some numbers previous for a story that I did, is that in both congressional and legislative, they became more uncompetitive. Um, so we're you know looking so take congressional district five, um, you know that was a pretty competitive race the past two election cycles. Now it's going to be more favored for the Republican Party. We're still going to see um, people coming out to run, though, but the question is how many and kind of, you know, how they actually do on election day. Now, after Friday, there are still a few opportunities for the final election roster uh, to get revised a bit. What comes next? Yeah, so one of the things that we'll see after Friday is there will be a number of candidates who withdraw from races. So you got to kind of keep tabs on that. You have a lot of times a candidate will run for a seat, maybe get an opponent they don't expect, um, decide it's not worth it, and they drop out. The other thing is there's a thing called um, a candidate can contest a candidacy of their opponent, um, usually along the lines of, you know, this person doesn't live in the actual district where they're running. And we see a lot of those challenges, usually a dozen or so, and sometimes people get, you know, knocked off the ballot. So that's something to keep an eye on. All right. Well, thanks, Trevor. You can read all of Trevor's coverage of democracy and this year's election at OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.